Well, I can't tell you how great it is to be back with you at Truth Community. It is indeed a privilege for Michelle and I to be here. As Don said, this is my third time here. And I have to say that of all the churches that I am familiar with, and uh, at my age I am familiar with a lot of churches, I consider Truth Community to be the closest in spirit to the church that I pastor in Clearwater, to the point that I look at Truth Community as a sister church, and your pastor as one of my dearest and treasured friends. So, John, I want to thank you for inviting me back, for being my friend, and for allowing me to speak to the church from this very special pulpit. So it has been a number of years since I have been with you. A lot has happened during that time, some good things and some bad things. And uh, as Don interviewed me, um, some of the things I'll say at the beginning are really uh, redundant, but without doubt this last year has been the hardest for Michelle and myself we've ever faced. As I mentioned about a year ago, A little over a year ago, Michelle's unsaved brother, there was no question in our mind that he was not a Christian, Uh, he died. I mean, unless there was a, you know, 11th hour conversion, which we're not familiar with, he died and he's in in hell today. Um, Then last August, Michelle's mom passed away. And then in September, unexpectedly and very suddenly, on a Friday morning, did our precious 10-year-old Lila go to be with the Lord in in heaven. And then two months ago, as you know, I underwent open heart surgery. But what has sustained us during this whole time, what has comforted us during these difficult months has indeed been the word of God. Your pastor once said to me years ago, I don't remember, Don, if you ever recall this, but you said, what would we do without the word of God? And it's so true. What would we do without the word of God? It has been our sustainment. It has encouraged. It has comforted us. Tonight, I want to direct your attention to what is without doubt one of the most, if not the most comforting place in all of Scripture, and that's the beloved Psalm 23. So if you have your Bibles, or these days we say your tablets, just open to that psalm. Ever since David penned this psalm, it has been the source of incredible comfort and encouragement to countless people, even even those who have little to do with Christianity have often turned to Psalm 23 to bring them solace and consolation in times of of grief. Now, depending on which Bible translation you use, there are between 114 and 118 words in Psalm 23. You don't need to count them now, but trust me, there are. But none are more important than the words we read in the very last verse of this Psalm. Verse 6, David said, Surely goodness... And loving kindness or mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This concluding verse of Psalm 23 has been called the sixth string on David's harp, and it's one that sounds a a note of confidence, a, a, a note of assurance. That's just the tone of this. And the reason that this final verse resonates with such confidence, such assurance, is because having experienced the goodness of the Lord up to this point in his life, as David looks ahead to the future, 
he tells us that he is absolutely certain. He says, surely, he's absolutely certain that God's goodness and God's mercy in his life will not cease, but will continue until he is safely home in heaven where he will dwell with the Lord forever. You see, Psalm 23 is David's testimony to the fact that God has been such a wonderful, such a, such a kind shepherd to him. That's really the gist of Psalm 23. As one of the Lord's sheep, David, he takes up his pen, he writes this psalm in order to let us know that his divine shepherd, and remember David had been a shepherd, so he understands about shepherding, but he tells us that his divine shepherd has been so incredibly kind to him by providing everything that he needs, not in the sense of luxuries, but everything he needs to carry on a healthy relationship with the Lord. And that's why he begins Psalm 23, and I'm just going to give you the flow of the, of the psalm until we get to the last verse. But he begins Psalm 23 with these now famous words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And from verse 2 until verse 5, David tells us exactly what the Lord has provided for him so that he can continue walking in the warmth and the smile of his fellowship. Using the language of a shepherd in his relationship to one of his sheep, David unfolds what God has provided for him. So watch the, the flow, the progression of thought here. The first thing he says is, is that he, he gives him peace and rest in his heart. So that, like a literal sheep who feels so safe, so secure, knowing that his shepherd is there, he's present to care for him, that he feels comfortable enough to lie down and rest in green pastures and quiet waters, something that sheep don't usually do. They're very skittish animals. So David tells us that that's the way it is with him. God gives him rest and peace and tranquility in his own heart. That's why he says in verse 2, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. But David knows how prone he is in his own heart to, to sin, to wander away from his shepherd. And so he tells us that the Lord also provides not only rest in his heart, but he also provides something else. He provides restoration for his soul when he strays. Verse 3, he restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David tells us because the Lord loves him so much that when he wanders, his shepherd goes after him. He, he goes after him, he restores his soul, and he does this by convicting him of, of his sin and bringing him to the point of repentance. And once that happens, his shepherd returns him to the fold, returns him to his fellowship, so that he's now once again following the Lord. But in following his shepherd, David finds that at times he's called to follow the Lord through some very dangerous and dark paths in his life, which he calls the valley of the shadow of death. In a broader sense, they refer to those dark and difficult times of uncertainty that all believers at some point go through. But David reveals that in, the, that in spite of the dangers involved in going through those dark valleys, he's not afraid. He's not afraid because God meets his need for protection. And thus he writes in verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, 
for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Knowing that his shepherd is, is right there, right beside him, David says that he's not fearful, he's not fretting, he's not anxious because he knows that his shepherd is there to protect him from his enemies. And finally, after completing his journey through those dark valleys, and in Israel there are a lot of valleys like that. They're very dark and dangerous. David tells us that his shepherd, knowing that he, he is exhausted from all of that difficult traveling, he's in need of a good meal. He's in need of some refreshment. He leads him where? To his home. Where is a gracious host? His shepherd ministers to him in his physical needs by providing what? Food, water, and olive oil to renew his strength. And so he writes in verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. So folks, this has been David's testimony to the Lord being his shepherd. When he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, David has experienced God's goodness in his life. He's experienced all of these things that God provides for him. And he wants all of us to know how how good God has been to him and that he's met every one of his needs. And David has a purpose in this. His purpose in telling us this is his reason for writing Psalm 23 is so that we'll know as the Lord's people that what the Lord has done for David, he does for all of his people. David was not unique in that sense. So that if you're one of his sheep by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then he gives you rest in your heart. He restores your soul when you wander. He protects you from your enemies. He meets your physical needs. That's David's testimony to us. But having read all these wonderful things that David has said about his shepherd, at this point in the psalm, we're faced with an all-important question. We know that God is tender. We know that God has been a kind, gracious shepherd to David. David's already told us that. What he hasn't told us, though, is how long will God's tenderness and kindness towards us last? Will the Lord ever grow tired of caring for us as his sheep? Because after all, sheep, as you know, they're pretty dumb animals, really stupid animals. And like them, we do a lot of dumb and foolish things. So will God ever grow weary of shepherding us? Will he ever grow weary of providing for our needs? In other words, will we ever reach a point in our lives where the Lord is just going to say, you know, that's enough. I'm going to stop supplying your needs. Will he ever quit shepherding us? That's really the question. And that question and that issue was apparently on David's mind as he, as he brings Psalm 23 to a close because in this final verse, he talks about what will happen to him all the days of his life. Meaning what? Meaning all the days ahead of him. Those days that he has yet to live out. In other words, the rest of his life from that moment on. See, David has already told us how good God has been to him, but only up to this point in his life. But now he proceeds to tell us how God is going to treat him in the future. And not just his future on earth. David takes it further by speaking about what will happen to him when he dies, when his days on earth come to a close and eternity begins for him. And what David concludes is that his shepherd will never abandon him. His shepherd will never stop caring for him. 
his shepherd will never cease shepherding, pastoring him, meeting his needs because he knows that for the rest of his life and even after his life on earth ends, the Lord is going to still be there, still be there for David, meeting his needs. And that's true for us as well. And what is it that David tells us he needs as he faces the future? Well, that's the subject of the final verse of this psalm. As David tells us that he is absolutely confident, he is certain, he is sure, he has assurance that whatever the future holds, he knows that God will continue being his shepherd and therefore he will continue providing for him. And what will the Lord provide for him? It's what every one of us needs as we face the future. It's the greatest thing that we all need, namely his kindness, his mercy. Verse 6, David writes, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, as David brings this, this, what we would call, it's a masterpiece of a psalm to a close, he draws a conclusion about the Lord based upon what he already knows concerning his shepherd knowing that God has always been good to him and has always treated him with such loving kindness so as to meet every one of his, of his needs. David knows that he can count on God's goodness and loving kindness following him all the days of his life. Now, anyone can read this. We know what this verse is saying. Many of you have probably memorized this. So we know what it, what it says, but what we want to do tonight is go a little bit deeper and we want to understand what David means by what he says. And that requires us to do a little thinking. So to begin with then, it's important to notice that David starts this sentence with the word surely. Now this particular Hebrew word can be translated into English in one of two ways. It can be translated as only or surely. And those who think it should be translated as only, they believe that what David is saying is that in the future, only God's goodness, only God's mercy will follow him to the exclusion of all other things. In other words, God's kindness to him will be so great that anything else, like adversity, it isn't even worth, worthy of being considered or mentioned because it just will not be his experience. That cannot be what David is saying. It can't possibly be what he means because the Bible teaches that adversity is a reality for every believer in Christ. Nobody escapes adversity. And as we read the Psalms that David wrote, we, we, we study David's life in the Old Testament. We see that David was very much aware about suffering. He, he was very much aware that his remaining days would be filled with all kinds of problems, and difficulties, and disappointments. And God told David this. David doesn't even have to say, well, I'm going to suffer like all believers. No, David suffered even more. God specifically told David that his life was not going to be easy. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read these words, verses 9 through 11. Why, directed towards David, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil? In his sight, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, 
have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Now, what we read here is that God disciplined David severely for his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah, her husband. And he did this by giving him really a lot of adversity, more than most. And notice that this discipline will be long. It, will, it won't be brief. It'll continue throughout David's lifetime. This was his future. In other words, David would experience continual violence related to his family just as he had been violence in making sure that Uriah the Hittite was killed by the sword. And because David had done evil to Uriah's family, (coughs) so David would experience evil in his own family. That's exactly what the word of God tells us happened. One of David's sons violated one of his daughters, a stepsister. Another son killed his own brother. Then that same son, Absalom, rebelled against David and almost killed him and destroyed his entire kingdom. In addition, because David's sin with Bathsheba was of a sensual nature, Absalom would have relations with David's concubines during his rebellion. So, now going back then to Psalm 23, we know that in light of all the horrible things that God said that David would experience in his life, we know this, that David couldn't possibly, couldn't possibly mean that only God's goodness Only God's mercy would follow him and nothing else of a negative nature. We know that that couldn't possibly be what he meant because David's life was filled with all kinds of problems, all kinds of adversities. See, what what David means by this statement, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, is this. Note this. In spite of all the adverse circumstances he knows he will experience, he is absolutely certain He has no doubt that God's goodness and his loving kindness will also be there, following him throughout the remaining days he has to live, days of adversity. Now, this is a truth that we have to stop and we have to think about and we have to digest this for ourselves because at times all of us, if we're honest, we have to admit that we've had trouble believing that God is good, God is kind to us when we're going through tough times and suffering a great deal. In fact, sometimes as we're going through hard times, painful trials, it's easier to believe that God is sovereign, God is powerful, than it is to believe that he's good and loving. So let's consider how to understand David's words when he says, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Now, to begin with, it's important to understand the actual meaning of these two words, goodness and loving kindness. The Hebrew word for goodness essentially means that which enhances and promotes one's welfare, something that's beneficial, something that's helpful. There's nothing terribly deep about that, something that's beneficial, good, helpful, promotes one's welfare. The Hebrew word that's translated loving kindness or mercy, it means exactly what it sounds like. Once again, nothing terribly deep here. It means kindness, favor, steadfast love, In fact, this word actually comes 
from another Hebrew word that means to bend or to bow oneself or to incline oneself. So the thought behind this word is that God's love for us is condescending in the sense that he stoops. He bends to serve us by being kind and being, being merciful to us, extending his grace and his favor to us. It's a beautiful picture of God's graciousness. So then what David is saying is he is absolutely sure that throughout his lifetime, right up to the day that he dies, God's goodness, those things that, that promote his welfare and God's loving kindness, his acts of compassion and grace, he's absolutely certain that they will follow him. And by follow him, David doesn't mean that they're just going to casually tag along. They're just going to be nonchalant about it. No, no, he's not saying, you know, they're just, they're just there. They're just behind me as if they have nothing better to do. That's not what David means at all. The word that David chose to use for follow, it means to pursue. It, it, it means to chase someone. It is the same word that's used in the Old Testament to speak of a military troop pursuing another military troop. So what David is saying is that God is so determined to extend his goodness and his loving kindness to us that he won't ever let him out of his loving care. The Lord will make sure that he continually pursues David with his goodness and mercy up to the very day that he dies. He's pursuing him. He's following hard after him. Charles Spurgeon called these two divine virtues of goodness and mercy. He called them God's twin guardian angels. Spurgeon said this, these twin guardian <clears throat> angels will always be with me at my back and my beck. Just as when great princes go abroad and they must not go unattended, so it is with the believer. Goodness and mercy follow him always, all the days of his life, the black days as well as the bright days, the days of fasting as well as the days of feasting, the dreary days of winter as well as the bright days of summer. Spurgeon is so right. So then, so then folks, the, the question we're faced with is this. How is it that God's goodness and God's loving kindness follow us so diligently, and yet, at the same time, we can suffer so much. How do we reconcile God's kindness to us when we are experiencing so much pain? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that this reality of, experience God's, of experiencing God's kindness and suffering pain at the same time, it is an experience only found in the life of someone who's a true believer in Jesus Christ. See, David is speaking as one of the Lord's sheep. He's speaking uh, to others who are part of the same flock of believers. That's, a, that's essential to understand because he's not saying that God's goodness and mercy follow someone who has rejected the Lord and salvation. Not the same way. We understand that God is good. He, he gives common grace to to unbelievers, but not in the same way that he gives mercy and goodness to a, to a believer in Christ. We understand this is the unique experience of a redeemed individual, someone who's, who has experienced conversion, who knows Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is not said of an unbeliever. In fact, I really would not expect a, a non-Christian to have any understanding of what David is talking about 
to those who are without Christ, suffering and tragedies are usually interpreted as God either not being powerful enough to stop them or God not being loving and good enough to stop them from occurring. There was one person I remember reading a number of years ago said this, when asked how to understand a great tragedy that had befallen some children, he said, and I quote, well, I guess God made a mistake this time. But you see, a true believer would, would never say that. We, we wouldn't even think that, let alone say such a thing, because we know that God is perfectly holy. He never makes a mistake. He never makes an error. We also know that God is sovereign and powerful, as well as he is loving. But knowing these truths doesn't mean that we don't struggle at times with trying to reconcile why a loving God who promises to have his goodness and loving kindness follow us all the days of our lives, not skipping any days, how he would still in his sovereign plan send us such pain and suffering at the same time. So how do we biblically think our way through this? Well, it's necessary to know that whenever we are tempted to doubt God's goodness, doubt God's loving kindness, we can always trace that temptation back to the source being Satan, the devil. And we know that these doubts come from him (coughs) because right at the very beginning of mankind's history, in his conversation with Eve in the Garden of Eden, Satan blatantly blatantly accuse God of not being loving, of not having our first parents' best interests at heart. (coughs) We read this in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from the tree of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the, true, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now notice the devil's progression of evil. First, he tempted Eve to doubt her understanding of God's word. Has God really said that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? In other words, you must be mistaken, Eve. You couldn't possibly have understood properly. You must be mistaken in your interpretation of what God said to you and Adam because that just doesn't sound right. Would God really tell you not to eat from a certain tree in his garden? That's the doubt. Then after his initial temptation to doubt the word of God, he moved on with an outright denial of God's word being true. Satan being the liar that he is, he said, surely you will not die. That is an outright denial of the word of God. And then finally, he accused God of not caring about she and Adam, insinuating that, look, Eve, if God did care about you, then he certainly wouldn't hold wouldn't withhold this fruit back from you, would he? You see, he doesn't want your eyes to be open because that would make you similar to him in terms of knowing good 
and evil. And he doesn't want you to be like him. So in forbidding you of this, he's withholding something good from you, Eve, because he's not good. He's not good at all. That's how the devil tempted and he deceived Eve. That perfectly fits his evil character because the Bible says that Satan is a liar. Jesus said he is a liar from the beginning. It is his nature to lie. He's a murderer. He's a liar. And he was lying about God not being good when he spoke to Eve. And you know what, folks? He lies to you every time he tells you, whispers in your heart that God can't possibly love you. He doesn't care about you. If he did, why would he let you suffer so much? Why would he let you do that? He can't possibly care for you. He's not, he's not good. You think he is, but he's not good, or you wouldn't have this pain. See, in contrast to what Satan says about God's love and his goodness, Scripture, though, emphatically, dogmatically declares that God, in his character, in his essential nature, he is good. He is good, and he does good because he is good. He does good for his people. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 31, verse 19, the beginning of verse 19. How great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you. Psalm 25, Beginning verse, the beginning part of verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. God said he is good. He's telling the truth, even though we may not feel it at the time. We take his word by faith. In addition, scripture reveals that God is loving and that he demonstrates his love to his people as well as his goodness. It isn't that this is just his character. He demonstrates it. For example, Psalm 32, verse 10 He who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him, shall surround him. If you've ever been to Israel, it's kind of an imagery. If you've you've been in Jerusalem, the mountains are all around Jerusalem. That's sort of the imagery here. God's loving kindness surrounds his people. So no matter how difficult a time you may be going through now or you have gone through or you will go through, God promises to never take back Never remove his loving kindness from you because his loving kindness, he says, surrounds you and always follows you. Listen to these precious words from Isaiah 54, verse 10. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. What a great promise. And of course, the greatest demonstration, the greatest proof of God's love for us is found in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrificial atoning death, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The apostle John expands on God's redemptive love for us in Christ when he, he writes in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, By this the love of God was manifested to us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. So if all of this is true, and it is, that God is good, that God is loving, God is kind, then again, 
I have to raise the question, why do we suffer so much? Why do we experience so much calamity, so much grief, so much heartache in our lives? I mean, if goodness and mercy are so busy chasing after us, then why do we still face the the pain of illness? The pain of betrayal, of financial crisis, of loneliness, of the death of a precious loved one, of disasters, of laming accidents, of being betrayed by others, of incurable diseases, and any other type of suffering imaginable. Well, are you ready for this? The answer? At least part of the answer? Frankly, we don't always know why we suffer. We don't always know why we suffer. Sometimes we just have to honestly admit that we don't know why God sends suffering into our lives and how that suffering works together with his goodness and his love following hard after us. We don't want to be like Job's friends. Remember Job's friends who thought that they knew what was going on in Job's life and they had all the answers, but in reality, they were absolutely clueless. Absolutely clueless. In his book, Is God Really in Control? Author Jerry Bridges writes this about suffering when we don't understand and we can't see any benefit to our suffering. He says, does God, does God explain to us what he's doing in adversity? There's no indication that God ever explained to Job the reasons for all of his terrible sufferings. As readers, we're taken behind the scenes to observe the spiritual warfare between God and Satan. But as far as we can tell from Scripture, God never told Job about that. And folks, there are times when God doesn't make it clear to us either why he is why, if he is so good and loving, why we experience so much pain in our lives. But what we do know is that there is a reason, and that in spite of your pain, God knows what he's doing. He never makes a mistake, even if he doesn't reveal the reason to you. See, one of the great truths taught in Scripture is that we are to focus on what we know to be true and not what we don't know not what we don't understand. Focus on what you do understand, what you do know. This is why God calls us to trust him with all of our hearts and not to lean on our own understanding. This is why Charles Spurgeon again once said these words, when we cannot see the hand of God, we can trust the heart of God. Let me say that again. That is a precious, precious truth. When we cannot see the hand of God, we can trust the heart of God. And Spurgeon could say that with absolute certainty because of what Isaiah says in chapter 55, 8, and 9, what God says in this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Commenting on these words, one Bible teacher said this. He said, the implication is that just... As the heavens are so high above the earth that by human standards their height cannot be measured, so also are God's ways and thoughts so above those of man that they cannot be grasped by man in their fullness. In other words, the ways and thoughts of God are incomprehensible to man. Listen, there are times that we just don't understand what God is doing in our 
in our lives. We, we, we don't understand how to reconcile God's love with the pain he sends into our lives. But we don't have to understand it, and we don't have to reconcile that, because Paul wrote that we walk by faith and not by sight, right? See, the only way to have peace in the midst of such pain is to apply your faith, to really believe in your heart that what God says in his word is absolutely true, that his twin virtues of goodness and mercy are really, really following you, even when you can't see them, even when satanic doubts are assaulting you. You have to hold fast with all of your strength to the truth that God being wise has sent this pain into your life for a good reason, a reason that he alone knows and he deems necessary for you. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Remember the great truth of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us belong to us and to our sons forever. So sometimes our suffering and pain, they belong to the secret things of the Lord, and he just hasn't revealed his purposes for them. But you can be assured that he does have a purpose for them. Once again, listen to these very helpful words from dear Jerry Bridges, who said, if we are to experience pain in our souls in times of adversity, we must come to the place where we truly believe that God's ways are simply beyond us and stop asking him why or even trying to determine it ourselves. This may seem like an intellectual cop-out, a refusal to deal with the really tough issues of life. In fact, though, it's just the opposite. It's a surrender to the truth about God and our circumstances as it is revealed to us by God in his inspired word. So, I say again, there are times when you may suffer and you may never understand why or how God's kindness fits with your suffering, at least not in this lifetime. But then, then there are other times where God does give us some insight and explanation concerning the purpose for our suffering. For example, we know that sometimes he brings suffering into our lives in order to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate his glory, to accomplish his sovereign purposes on a much larger scale. For example, we see this clearly in the incident of, remember the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? You recall from the story, it's found in John chapter 11, that when the Lord heard that Lazarus, his friend, was ill, he didn't rush to heal him. He let him die. The sisters of Lazarus, Martha and Mary, they were obviously disappointed. They didn't understand why the Lord would let his friend and their brother die. But Jesus did let Lazarus die. Why? Well, there are two reasons. First of all, so that his deity and his divine power would be demonstrated to his disciples by raising Lazarus from the dead. Notice what Jesus said in John chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, concerning his reason for letting Lazarus die and not healing him. We read, so Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. That's the purpose. You may believe. 
but let's go to him. In other words, Jesus let Lazarus die so that in raising him from the dead, it strengthened their faith in him as the Messiah and the Son of God. These men had very small faith. Jesus called them a number of times, oh, you men of little faith. They had some faith. It was just little. He strengthened their faith as he raised Lazarus from the dead. So listen, it may very well be that God has brought great pain into your life, suffering into your life, in order to either strengthen your faith or perhaps to bring someone else to faith in him that you're not even aware of at the time. In addition, Jesus let Lazarus die because his raising of Lazarus was all part of his sovereign plan to bring about his own death. We read a little bit later in this chapter, chapter 11, verses 47 through 53. Listen to this and and see the bigger scale, the bigger picture of what God was doing in letting Lazarus die. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened to council and were saying, what are we going to do? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man may die for the people, yet the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, kind of like what I did with Phil Johnson, prophetically, but unwitting. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Here's what we read, the last verse. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. That was what we would say, the straw that broke the camel's back. In the bigger picture, this had to happen so that the religious leaders were pushed so far that they said, we've got to eliminate him, and thus his death on behalf of our sins. Now, we can easily see these two purposes in in letting Lazarus suffer and die, We can easily see them because now we read about them in the word. But it wasn't apparent to anyone at that time what the Lord was doing as to why Jesus let Lazarus die, why he let his sisters suffer so much. However, in spite of their suffering, God's goodness and love were still following them. And eventually his good purposes for their suffering became apparent. See, the same thing, and I know you know this, Same thing in the sufferings of Joseph. In Genesis, we read about Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, who the man suffered greatly. First, his jealous and evil brothers, they sell him into slavery. Then he ends up, as you know, he ends up in Egypt where his master's wife lies and maliciously accuses him of trying to physically violate her. So he's thrown into prison where he's basically just a forgotten man, isn't he? And at this point in his life, Who could blame Joseph if he wondered why God would send so much suffering, so much pain into his life? But eventually, it all becomes clear to Joseph because through divine providence, he's released from prison in order to interpret a dream that Pharaoh had. And Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph that he makes him essentially the prime minister of Egypt so that he's now in the position to save the entire Jewish nation from dying due to the famine causing starvation all over the world. 
And so we read in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph's own testimony of how though he suffered a great deal, God's goodness and loving kindness never stopped following him all of those years. He said to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, though sometimes we can look back and see specifically what God in his kindness intended to accomplish and did accomplish by our suffering, there are other times where we just have to be content with knowing that our suffering is producing sanctification, spiritual growth, holiness in our lives. We may not know the exact places of sanctification, but we do know that we're growing because God has promised that suffering does this. Romans 8, 28 and 29 tell us this. And we know, and we know this by faith, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So this is a promise to the child of God that all things are working together for our good. Meaning the positive things, the negative things, the in-between, neutral things. All the pain, all the suffering in our lives. So how, how are they working for our good? Well, the next verse, for those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Folks, God is using pain in your life to make you more and more like Christ in terms of character. So what does this spiritual growth look like? What does this conformity to the image of Christ look like? Well, for one thing, it results in turning us back to the word of God and deepening our, our love for scripture our affection for the word so that we recommit ourselves to learning and obeying God's word. Suffering does that. It has a sanctifying effect of turning you back to scripture. Psalm 119.67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now, but now I keep your word. Yeah, the affliction drove this man back to the word. Psalm 119, verse 71, it, it's good for me that I was afflicted. Why? that I might learn your statutes. Suffering in our lives does produce a new and a renewed devotion to the word of God. See, suffering often gets our attention like nothing else, right? You suffer, you're a believer. What else do you have? It drives you back to the Bible. It was Martin Luther who supposedly said this, were it not for tribulation, I should not understand the scriptures. Spiritual growth also results in being more humble. Humble by our suffering makes us more dependent on the Lord. I thought about this as I was in the hospital, hooked up to all kinds of tubes, and I was just helpless. I was at the, the mercy of others taking care of me. It's very humbling. I remember the first day they're walking me in the hallway and the nurse is holding on to me so that I don't fall, even though I have a walker, and I'm telling them, you know, I used to run 10 miles very easily. <laughs> this is very, very humbling. Others have to do things for you. That's the way suffering is. It makes you more dependent on the Lord. You, you see that you're not self-sufficient. 
We see our sinful weaknesses, too, like never before. We see our pride and our selfish ambition and things like that. And it makes us, suffering makes us more compassionate. We learn to be sensitive. We learn to be thoughtful towards others who are suffering, too. I've said to others who have lost loved ones as a pastor, I'm praying for you. I understand. I care. But after Lila died, it took on a whole new meaning. When I tell someone now who's lost a loved one that I understand, I really do understand. It just gives you much more of a compassionate heart, sensitive, thoughtful. You can enter into their sufferings. Regardless of what you know or don't know concerning why God lets you suffer so much, the bottom line of all bottom lines is you just have to trust the Lord. You have to trust the Lord as David did, being confident that God's goodness and God's mercy are following hard after you, never to leave you all the days of your life, even if you can't see those twin virtues. They're there. And when you're old and you come to the end of your life, you'll be able to look back and testify that God has always been kind to you. David said so. He said so in Psalm 37, verse 25. I have been young, and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Isn't that a great testimony? I've been young, now I'm old. I've never seen God forsake one of his own. And folks, that's the same point that David is making in Psalm 23, that this wonderful shepherd of his The shepherd has been so kind to give him peace in his heart, restoration of his soul, protection from his enemies, physical refreshment to sustain life. This same shepherd will sustain him and be kind to him until he draws his last breath. But then what? Then what? What happens after that? What happens after one of the Lord's sheep dies? At that point, does God stop providing for us because our life on earth is over? Well, David tells us what happens by telling us in the final words of Psalm 23 what he knew was going to happen to him after he died. The end of verse 6. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a magnificent way to end this psalm. David's still talking about God's kindness He tells us that even when he dies, the Lord will continue to be kind to him. Because at death, he'll be ushered into the Lord's presence, where he'll dwell with him in his house forever. And in referring to the house of the Lord, David isn't talking about living in the temple in Jerusalem. For one thing, the temple hadn't been built yet. It wouldn't be built for a number of years. And it would be built after David's lifetime by his son Solomon. Besides, this can't possibly be a reference to the temple, a temple on earth, because no one could live there forever. So when David says that he'll live in the house of the Lord forever, literally meaning throughout the years or for all time, he's referring to God's house in heaven, the place that Jesus called his father's house, the place he said that there were many, many rooms there. In other words, David knew that God's goodness And God's loving kindness would never stop following him. He knew that they would follow him all the days of his life. And then, when he died, they would follow him right into God's presence 
where he would spend all of eternity. You see, folks, David is using the expression house of the Lord to speak of heaven. He was absolutely certain that after death he would go to heaven. And that's the kind of certainty every believer in Jesus Christ can and should have. Listen to our Lord's words in John 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and I love this. He said, if it were not so, I would have told you. Isn't that great? If this wasn't the case, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now listen closely. Normally, or I should say many times, People interpret this verse to mean that Jesus has gone back to heaven and for the last 2,000 years he's preparing a place for us in heaven. I don't think that's what he's talking about. For one thing, our God just spoke the world into existence. I don't think he needs 2,000 years to clean up heaven and get it prepared for us. I don't think he's dusting the rooms there and making everything tidy for 2,000 years. No, I take it that When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, meaning I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die for your sins, that will prepare a place for you in heaven. Because without that, there is no place for you in heaven. Because I will die on the cross for your sins. Because by his death on the cross, he took the place of of everyone who would come to believe in him so that he he was judged by God the Father in our place. The wrath that we deserved because of our sins, he took upon himself. He was our substitute sin bearer. In that way, he's prepared a place for us. And that's why God's goodness and mercy will follow a believer all the days of his life. And then they'll follow you right into heaven where you'll dwell with the Lord forever. Now, folks, that is our certain hope. That's our future. If you're a believer in Christ, that is your future. And you should be looking forward to that with immense eagerness. Sadly, though, reality is there are many Christians who are not looking forward to heaven. They, they are not eagerly anticipating heaven. And I, I think it's because they have oftentimes the wrong view of heaven. See, some believers view heaven as a place where their existence will be somewhat dull and boring and tedious. They envision them themselves floating around doing this, these monotonous tasks for all of eternity singing the same hymn over and over and over again forever. No inflection, nothing. But nothing could be further from the truth. Randy Alcorn has authored a fantastic book on heaven, but he also wrote an article a few years ago in which he explains, explained how exciting heaven will be. Let me read part of this to you. He said, home as a term for heaven isn't simply a metaphor. It describes an actual physical place, a place of fond familiarity and comfort and refuge. Scripture often speaks of banquets and feasts in heaven. We'll sit at tables with people we love and above all with Jesus we love. Revelation 21 and 22 tell us God will bring heaven down to this new earth by coming down to dwell there with his people. There'll be natural wonders, a great river and the tree of life producing different fruit every month. We would anticipate great sights and sounds and smells and tastes and delightful conversations. On that new world, his servants will serve him. That means things to do, places to go, people to see. 
As resurrected people will live on the new earth, not a a non-earthly angelic realm for disembodied spirits. We'll live in our resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth where the resurrected Jesus will rule on the throne of the new earth's capital city, a resurrected Jerusalem. And we will reign with him as righteous people ruling the earth to God's glory. That was exactly his design from the beginning. The Bible begins and ends with God and humanity in perfect fellowship on earth. Because we've already lived on earth, I think it'll seem from the first that we're coming home. The new earth will strike us as familiar because it will be the old earth raised, as our bodies will be our old bodies raised. The new earth will be the home we've always longed for. When we grasp the reality of the new earth, our present lives suddenly matter. Conversations with loved ones matter. Work, leisure, creativity, and intellectual stimulation matter. Laughter matters. Service matters. Why? Because they are eternal. Our present life on earth matters not because it's the only life we have, but precisely because it isn't. It's the beginning of a life that will continue without end. And beloved, that, that life will, will forever be filled with God's goodness and God's loving kindness, but only if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'm a, I'm a visitor here. I don't, I don't know all of you, but I urge you, if you've never trusted the Savior... Now is the time to do that. Make sure that you know Christ as your, your Savior. This is the only opportunity in this lifetime that you have to know Christ. Once you die, you don't have that opportunity. And I know your, your pastor has explained all of that so, so well to you. But if you are a believer, take heart. If you're suffering now, understand that even if you don't know what God is doing in your life, you do know that his loving kindness and his goodness are right there. You don't have to reconcile these things. You have to trust him, that he knows what he's doing, even as David trusted the Lord in all of his adversity. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this marvelous psalm. I thank you that it has brought such great hope to me, great hope to Michelle during our difficult times, and and great hope to so many others, Lord. And I pray tonight, even through my my coughing and disruptions, I pray, Lord, that the truth of your word has come through in a powerful way. We thank you that you are good and you do good for your people. We thank you that your loving kindness surrounds us. And Lord, for those who are going through some deep suffering now, I pray that you've brought encouragement to their heart. I pray that you'll help them, as Spurgeon said, when they can't see your hand, they can, they can trust your heart. And your heart is a good heart. And you do have your reasons for our pain and suffering, even when we don't see them. But Lord, no matter what, our trust is in you. We trust you with all of our hearts, and we don't, lean, we don't want to lean on our own understanding. So I pray you'll take your word, apply it to each one here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.